Well, thank you, brother, very much for opening the meeting so well and for giving me again the invitation uh, to come along to the meeting tonight and to share with you again very special things from God's Word. It's a delight to be here. I was thoroughly blessed in the meeting last week, and I trust tonight again is going to be no exception that we'd all leave the gathering, as we often say, feeling it was good for us to be here, for here again we have met with the Lord. A brother was talking there about the wise men, and it brought an incident into my mind. I was conducting a mission in Rathfryland many years ago, and I was driving home one night, and there was a car in the front of me, and there was something unusual on the back window, and I couldn't figure it out what this was. You know, one of these stickers on the window. So he pulled into the side of the road, and I pulled in behind him. Curiosity killed the cat to say, well, I was going to find out what was on that back window that night. And what it said was this, wise men came to Jesus, they still do. I thought that was good. So I took it up in the meeting the following night, that statement. Wise men came to Jesus, they still do. There was a guy in the meeting, and he has little problems, this fella. You know, he, he talks very quick and maybe says too much sometimes. I think you know what I mean, but every time he addressed me, he gave me my full name. He always called me Harvey Shaw, the full title, you see. And when the meeting was over that particular night, he came up to me all pleased. And he said, Harvey Shaw, I want to tell you this. When I was a wee man, wee boy, my dad used to talk to me about the three wild men from the East. And there's a new one for you. I'd never heard of that before. Uh, that came into my head there tonight whenever you were giving out the announcements there. The three wild men from the East. But there you are. Lovely to be here, friends. And in a moment or two, we'll be coming back to the scriptures of truth again. The Lord is coming. You believe that? Do you want me to ask you to put your hymn book in there and wave it around? Well, do it. Do you believe the Lord is coming? Well, get the book up and give it a wee wave to see where you all are. You all believe he's coming. That's good. That's good. Do you believe he's coming soon? I do. I think the... I wouldn't dare to set dates or anything of the sort. But as I look around me in the world tonight, as every other believer is doing, I believe, there's no doubt that the end of the age is approaching. The old world as we know it simply cannot go on much longer. There needs to be intervention. And that intervention is not human. I've been listening to these men who are carrying on this conference, whatever kind of thing it was during the week. I've been listening to that with interest. And what saddens me is this. They're probably honest men doing their best. 
I don't know what sort of men they are. But there's one thing that bothers me, and it's this. The Lord's name is never mentioned. I've never heard it. And yet the scriptures tell us that the earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods and so on. And of course, someday soon he's coming. And as we'll see tonight, I believe the second coming takes place in two stages. I believe that he's coming first of all to the air for his own. That's the rapture of the church. And then at the end of the tribulation, he's coming back to earth with his own. That's the great revelation when he shall set up his 1,000 year kingdom. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So we're possibly living in the age of prophecy being fulfilled right at our very doorstep. I wonder tonight, are we really aware of the fact? But what I've been trying to do, friends, is establish into the mind and hearts of God's people that this is a reality. Lady said to me, some weeks ago after a meeting. She said, you know, I'm saved this number of years. I've been hearing about the rapture of the church and so on for all of that time. And yet, things are going the way they were. I said, dear, you're wrong, you know. They're not going the way they were at all. The prophecies of Scripture are taking place today. And it's all pointing to one thing. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as a believer tonight, will you think about that for a moment or two? You're going away someday and you're not coming back. Think of that. Just ponder that for a minute or two. The world, I believe, may be glad to be rid of us. Is our lifestyle a rebuke? It ought to be to those who don't know the Savior. And when you think about some of the problems that will be solved, it will solve the housing situation. Well, they can do what they like with mine, you see. And it will solve the unemployment situation. There'll be... Hundreds and hundreds of jobs made available. Well, it'll all happen quickly, very quickly. And the rapture of the church could just pave the way for Antichrist in a very special way, for he could get the credit for all this, and it would give him the uplift that he may need. I was reading an interesting article there in a magazine recently, which had to do with the nation of Israel. The mission we conducted there about six weeks ago, up in uh, 
Glenn, Go sorry, not Glenn Gormley, Carrick Fergus, uh, was a remarkable time where God blessed. But after the meeting, one night, a man came up and he gave me this magazine, which I'd never heard of before, on the nation of Israel. Some of the most interesting reading that I have personally ever seen. But you know, friends, as I read that magazine, I came on a very interesting fact, and it was this, that there's an aeroplane, what title will I give them, a company or a uh, whatever aeroplane companies are, I don't know the right name, they have got to the point at the moment where they won't send up two saved pilots together. They won't do it. The reason is this. If the Lord were to come, the pilots would go, what would happen to the plane? They have grasped something. Therefore, they will only send up a believer and an unbeliever together. So if the believer goes quickly, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, well, the other guy can bring the plane safely into land. Woe betide you, I suppose, if the other pilot would point you to Christ on the flight. I don't know what would happen then. But this is reality. Reality. And so many things are going to happen so quickly in our world. I often think of the three words that are used concerning the Lord's return. He's coming quickly. He's coming in a moment. He's coming in the twinkling of an eye. How in the world do you describe the twinkling of an eye? No preacher I know who has been bringing the gospel to people for years, he calls that half a wink the twinkling of an eye. And just imagine that as quickly as that, the dead will be raised. Thousands, probably millions of people will be raised from the dead. And you and I will be changed. And we're going to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's a miracle. Above all other miracles, I think, that's going to happen when the Lord Jesus actually comes again. Won't that change be something vitally important for you and I? We sure need it. I used to uh, have a brother who went with me. He's now in heaven to do a bit of singing. I may have had him here. I don't know. But he was a character. I used to tell him there was only two times whenever he could really sing. Either when he was angry or when he was showing off. Someone of the two. His name was Bertie. And I used to make sure before I got him to a meeting that he was angry about something. Because then you got the best out of him. Now if you'd have seen him and I together, you talk about little and large. It was comical. He could actually stand up in the car. He was no size. He had no height. But he certainly had width. You see. You know, I could say something but I won't. And... Uh, 
I used to tease him. Now, I must say this, and I must be careful. I'm not saying this. If any form of hatred or anything of the sort, he was a free Presbyterian. I'll say that quietly, you see. But I remember one night in particular that we were on our way to a meeting. And boy, I had him riled, really. And uh, I'm not going to tell you what I'd done, but I did it to get him wound up. And there was no bother with seatbelts in those days. And he stood up in the car and he looked at me. Oh, he looked as fierce as a bull at me. And he said, sure, the Lord's coming. And he changed you. And he says, you don't half need it. <laughs> that was his opinion of me. Well, do we not all need it? We certainly do. Are we living on the tiptoe of expectancy? That's the big issue tonight. It really is. Are we going to be caught up and caught on? Maybe involved in a lifestyle that's very discrediting to a child of God and brings dishonor to the Lord. Maybe in a backslidden condition. I know many, many people who are in that condition tonight. Do you know, if that is the case tonight, then we're going to find ourselves ashamed before him at his coming. Now those who are with us in the meeting last week will remember that I talked to you about the golden crown. And uh, coming into the meeting tonight, I was asked, unless I didn't make it clear, I'll mention again where you get that. Whenever the Lord Jesus comes again, you're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and then you go in with him to the presence of the Father, and he says, Behold I and the children whom thou hast given me. And at that point, you receive the golden crown. That's when you get it. It's the only crown that's guaranteed. Every other crown, you've got to win them to wear them. There are five others in Scripture. Now, I'm not going to go near those other five tonight. There's something else I do want to talk to you about, about the Lord's return. But whenever that is over, there will be judgment in heaven and judgment on earth. The judgment seat of Christ begins in heaven and the great tribulation begins on earth. And as a believer on the Lord Jesus tonight, please do not forget that word judgment. I've heard people say, and I believe say mistakenly over the years, that for the child of God, judgment is over. That cannot be. If it is the judgment seat of Christ, then judgment is not over. But what is the issue? The issue, my friend, is this. When you stand at the judgment seat of Christ, sin is not the issue, for that was judged at Calvary. But the issue is service. I have nothing to fear for my sin, but I have everything to fear for my service. Now, can't I say this to you? I've got to say this careful, but it's a fact. Sometimes I honestly feel that some of God's people are a little bit deluded 
about the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not saying that unkindly. I'm saying it because I've seen this. Because I've heard people say that I'm doing this for the Lord and I'm doing that and the other for the Lord. And when you look in a week or two's time, they're away somewhere else. Old Nicholson, when he was around, I never heard the man or met him or anything of the sort. But he used to talk about somebody called Johnny Mora. I don't know who Johnny Mora was. But he had this wee poem. Johnny Mora, wheel the bora, hear the day and away the mora. There's a lot of Johnny Moras about. You couldn't depend on them five minutes. You see. Now reliability is a big issue. Stability is a big issue. But I want to say this to you, and then I'm coming to what I want to get at tonight. That when I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, what I did for the Lord is not going to count one iota. Not in the slightest. Now I've got to make it clear to you by rephrasing the statement. It's not what I did for the Lord that will count. It's what the Lord does through me for himself that will count. Can I repeat that? It's what the Lord does through me for himself that will count. And you need to be sure, and I need to be sure, that the Lord's doing things through you. You say to me, how am I to know or determine that situation is quite easy, friend. Just ask him. Ask and ye shall receive. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Seek and ye shall find. I spent time with a, a young man today. He's the only young guy I have met for quite a considerable period of time who takes a day and a week off work to seek God for his future and what God wants him to do. And he came today Seeking advice, you see. And I tried to give him as much sensible advice as ever I could. But I discovered that in many issues he's totally confused. Now, here's the guidebook. And God will guide you from his word. If it's not here, then it's not God. This is the guidebook for the child of God. And if you want to know something, the Lord will bring you here. And he'll show you. Boy, when he does, what a thrill it is to know that you're in his will. The hymn writer wrote, there's no peace, no joy, no thrill, like walking in his will. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let me say this and then I'll come to the scriptures. In order for the Lord to be doing his will through you for his glory, you need to be walking very tight to him. There's no doubt about that. I was preaching at a meeting last Sunday morning, I think it was, and we were looking at that term concerning the Lord Jesus being a wonderful counselor. Some try to tell you that that term actually means wonderful and counselor. Others say that the comma shouldn't be there the two things are one. He's a wonderful counselor, or he's both wonderful and counselor. I can take it either way. It doesn't bother me at all. I'm not a, a scholar when it comes to Hebrew or Greek or anything like that. 
I have to rely on what others were telling us. But what we did was this, and this is a little bit of homework for you if you like. We went from that particular statement into the 23rd Psalm. And I endeavored to show them in the 23rd Psalm how the counselor is all that you need. You need nothing else. David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You can put the word counseling in there if you like. You won't want counseling. He'll give it to you. But watch. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He's taking care of everything beneath me. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He's taking care of everything beside me. He restoreth my soul. He's looking after everything within me. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. He's taking care of everything before me. On we could go. But the last verse tells us, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. So he's looking after everything behind me. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he's looking after everything beyond me. Could you want a better counselor than that? Lean on him. Listen to his voice. Do as he tells you. And I tell you, your life will become extremely blessed. Now, let's come to the little book of Titus. Away at the end of our Bible. Titus, sometimes when you get up, you say far more than what you actually do whenever you come to speak on something. But let's go to Titus and uh, let's have a look at the second chapter for a few moments. Titus, where the Apostle Paul is dealing with grace. You'll find that in the beginning of the chapter, sorry, chapter 1, he uses this remarkable statement again in verse 4. To Titus, mine own son after the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he bring that trio together? Well, friends, I'm not going to deal with this tonight. Mercy takes away from me all I ever deserved as a sinner. And that's a lot. Grace bestows upon me all that I never deserved as a sinner. And peace is the result. You could go on. He has taken in mercy hell out of my future. And in grace he has given me heaven. In mercy, I'm sorry, in, sorry, in mercy he has taken Satan out of my future. And in grace, he has given me Christ. In mercy, he has taken eternal wrath out of my future. And in grace, he has given me eternal life. Is it any wonder we have peace with God? Any wonder what a Savior we have and what a mighty salvation. But when you come to the second chapter of this epistle, friends, it's a simple little epistle of three chapters, but I would reckon Titus would be 
one of the most practical little books written in the whole of the Bible. It brings a great challenge. Now, let's get this word grace locked into our mind for a moment or two. I was conducting a mission many years ago, friends, down in Brookborough. And we were having a remarkable time and God was blessing. But there were three girls attending the mission. And uh, they were sitting together. And when I was preaching in the meeting, they were sitting with their hand like this. They were catching their finger, you see. And then the other one would catch a finger. And then the other one would catch a finger. And I'm thinking, what are those three up to? What in the world are they doing? So I decided I would risk finding out. I pulled the three of them aside one night and I said, what on earth are you three up to? What's all this about? Oh, they said, we're counting the number of times that you mention our name in the message. I said, what's your name? Our name is Grace and Faith and Hope. That was their names. I said, why are you doing that? Well, it's like this, she said. The one that you mention least buys the chips on the way home. <laughs> That's what it was all about. So be careful. Don't be counting your fingers now. Count your blessings, but leave the fingers alone. Hmm. Now, let's go quickly down to verse 11. Because you're saved by grace, friend, and so am I. But once you're saved by grace, you go into the school of grace. And you're never done with it until you reach the end of life's journey. And Paul says here, this is what grace brought. For the grace of God. My I think that's a delightful statement. Grace. God's free, unmerited favor. God's riches at Christ's expense. Oh, to grace. How great a debtor, dearly, I'm constrained to be. What does it do? It bringeth salvation. My. Just think about that for a minute as you sit in the meeting. Had it not been for the fact that the grace of God brought salvation to your heart, to the door of your heart, and to the door of your very life, you would be on your way to hell tonight, and there's every chance you might be there. But grace acted. Grace got involved with you. Grace got involved with me. And it brought salvation. It's like Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark had three stories, you see. And uh, God's salvation that came by grace has got three tiers. The bottom tier is this. You're saved by grace from the penalty of sin by the death of Christ. Then you start climbing. You're saved by grace... From the power of sin by the life of Christ. The life the Savior lives at the Father's right hand in glory. And you're saved by grace or will be saved by grace from the presence of sin altogether. And that will be 
at the coming of Christ. And here's a remarkable thing. The window was on the top of the ark. And the only way that Noah could see out was up. Brethren and sisters, Noah never saw the flood. No, no, how could he? There were no windows in the side of the ark or anything like that. The only way he could see out was up. Boy, what a lesson that is for you and I in the days in which you and I are living. The world would depress you no end. And that's understandable because you're in it. You're part of it. You're living here and you don't know what's going to happen next. But keep your eye on Noah's window. I knew a brother very well. And he was an ex-chief petty officer in the Royal Navy. And he was one of the few that were rescued when the Princess Victoria sank. And through that event, he got gloriously saved. God always gets the victory in all of these things. My late wife was saved through the Manchester United disaster. That's a strange one. But she was attending a tent mission by the late Ernie Allen, preaching. And when she came into the house, the 10 o'clock news was on. And her father was sitting in the chair listening to it. And he looked at her and he said, Merely, if that were you, where would you be? And she just went down the bathroom and fell at her knees at the side of the bath and asked the Lord to save her. God always gets the victory in all of these things. Now that was a remarkable experience and one that lasted throughout the whole of our lifetime. But I said to this man one day, I said, Wilf, tell me something. Is there any particular spot or place in the British Isles with which we're familiar that would give us an idea of what size the ark was? I look at some of these arches sometimes, you see, and you've got this wee rowboat, and Noah's standing on the top of it, holding on to the mast of the flag, and a lion looking around the side, and a, something else looking out from between his legs. I've seen those pictures. That's not what the ark was like, friend, not at all. Wolf looked at me, and he said, yes, I do. He says, I'll give you something coming very, very close to it. I said, what is it? He says, Wembley. The Wembley Stadium. Now, if you look up the, the size of Wembley and look here at the size of Noah's Ark, there's a big similarity. That'll give you some idea of how big the Ark really was. It wasn't a little fishing boat by any manner of means. It was far, far bigger even than the Titanic. It was a wonderful, wonderful invention. But that's another story. I'll not go into that tonight. But notice this, friends. Here's what it brought now. It hath appeared to all men. I had a man come into the house to see me one day, given off, raging mad at me, because I preached the gospel to the whosoever will. And he was all hung up on this elect and so on. And he came from England, thankfully, and he went away back, and I was even more thankful when that happened. I went to the road. Uh, you know, I knew a pastor friend in Newton Hards years ago. He belonged to the Elam people. We want to tell you something good. He always did this, you know. And I met Big Willie as we knew him on the street one day. And he was going like this and he was smiling. And I said, Willie, what's wrong with you? What's good? Oh, he said, Harvey, 
blessed extractions. <laughs> there were two people giving him trouble on the left, and he was glad to get rid of them. Sometimes that can happen, you know, and uh, you're not going to shed too many tears after it, I can tell you. I've been around that corner a time or two. But this boy was a nuisance, always picking holes. And I looked at him and I said, tell me this. When I go out to bring the gospel to people, are you trying to tell me that I needn't invite people into the mission because I could be inviting people in who are not going to be saved anyway? That's what you're trying to tell me. So I said, if what you're telling me is true, then God discriminates against his family, the family that he created in Adam. He had no answer to that. But what does all men mean here? It doesn't say some men. It says all men. And what does whosoever mean? I think it means what it says, beyond a doubt. And I think this is lovely. This is what it brought. It brought salvation and it appeared to all men. Now, all men won't accept it. I won't believe it and won't receive it. And that is sad. But it doesn't mean the opportunity is not there. They can be if they want to be. Now, that's another topic that I'm not going to take any further. Because this is where I want to get to. To this 12th verse. You see, once you get saved by grace, then you go back to school. No matter who you may be or what age you are. What grace brought, what grace taught. Now, notice the way this is phrased. Paul said, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. Now he's going from the all to the us. The us are those who have accepted the Savior, embraced and received the message. But those who haven't, are not in the rest of this teaching at all. It's only us who are saved. Now all they need to do is repent, believe, and come in. And they'll be in like everybody else. But you're back to school now. In the meeting tonight. Teaching us what? Now I don't want to say too much about this. It says here, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. I don't want to talk about that in the meeting tonight. I think you have a jolly good idea what Paul's referring to. But do you see this word denying? Now I've told you earlier that I'm no Greek or Hebrew scholar. But it could also be read denouncing on godliness and worldly lust. But the lesson that we're being taught is this. You can't denounce it if you're living in it, how can you do that? How can a publican deny, denounce alcohol? How can he do that if he's selling it on to people and wrecking and destroying their lives? Not very many people that would stand up on a pulpit like this tonight, and I don't say this boastingly, I'm simply telling you the truth. I never had an alcoholic drink in my life. Never had. And the reason for that was very simple. Whenever I was at school, my chum at school was the son of a publican. And I was round at the back of that pub every day, coming home from school, waiting on him. And then we went on up to where I lived at that time. 
and we went to the usual football and all this kind of thing in the afternoon. But I saw things at the back of that pub that put me off drink for life. My mother used to say, when I was going out, now don't you be going to, I said, Mom, you didn't worry about me going near that old pub. I said, you may not have known it, but I was in there nearly every day. But I said, I have no intention of going near it. None at all. And I'm just giving you that as an example. You can't denounce if you don't deny. If you're living in something that this old world has given to lead men and women to damnation and eternal ruin, and it's in your life, and there's no point in you denying it, for nobody's going to listen to you. Look where this old clock is. I was going to say a few things there. I wonder should I? I'll give you one. When I was at school, you think I was ever at school? Sometimes I wonder, you know. And uh, they used to get us all together in an assembly room like this. And they would have brought someone in to give us a talk about something like alcohol or whatever. And one day, a dear old doctor called Dr. Scott, he used to say he was the best old doctor could be got. And they brought him in. And we were all brought into the assembly hall. And he was talking to us about smoking, you see. So he put his hand in his pocket and he brought out a pipe. And then he brought out a packet of Condor sliced tobacco. And I knew a bit about it because the fishermen used to eat it. it tastes lovely. I tried it once and never forget it. My mouth burned for a week. How anybody chewed on stuff, I do not know. But I tried it once was enough. That was it. And then he brought out a packet of coffin nails, Willie Woodbine. Do they still get them now or not? Well, they're still available. Put all this down on the table. And he did the thing so masterly that he convinced me I should never touch them. Totally. Following Saturday, my mother had a sister at that time lived in Newton Ards and they used to interchange on a Saturday. She went up one Saturday. My aunt would have come down the next one to where we lived. And my father shopped none. He didn't like shopping at all. And the way in those days in Newton Ards, there were seats outside the town hall yonder. And he used to say to my mother, Liz, I'll be here when you come back. I think the reason why he'd done it was he could have placed her with nothing. And it was desperate altogether. She'd have seen something she liked, you see. And she'd went away all around the town, looked at everything else, and come back and bought it. That used to make me raging. And I have a daughter who does exactly the same thing. And, and I would say to her, I'd say, Karen, I'll take you over, you see, and I'll leave you off, and I'll come back for you, but I'm not staying. I have no intention of You can stay the half of the day. And she'd still come back and get the thing that she saw first. Don't know why that is. a kind of a disease, I think. I'm glad I don't have it. But anyway, I was sitting there casually looking down the South Street there that leads you down to Cumber. Who does I see but old Dr. Scott coming up the road walking? But somehow or other, the pipe had got into his mouth. And the back tobacco had got into the pipe. 
And he was coming up the street like one of Kelly's coal boats with the smoke going out over his shoulder. And I was looking at him and I called him for everything under the sun under my breath. I said, you old so-and-so. That wasn't the words he used. It was something a wee bit more choice than that. I said, you tried to teach us not, not, not to smoke and look at you the way you're doing. Do you know what the result of that was? I went back to the cigarettes and smoked for years afterwards. You can't denounce something if you don't deny it an inroad into your life. Another man came to the school one day and he wanted to teach us about the evils of drink. And he brought out of his pocket one side a bottle of water and he poured it into a glass. And he brought a bottle of whiskey and he poured it into the other glass. And he brought out a box and there was a worm in it. So he brought and he warm and he put it into the water, you see. And it swam around very happy. The wee warm. And then he put it into the other whiskey glass and shriveled up and died. Poor wee warm. Shriveled up and died. Now he says, boys, do you see the motive now? Do you see the lesson there? One fellow put his hand up. He says, yes, sir. What is it? <laughs> he says, if you drink whiskey, you won't have warms. <laughs> never, never forgot that. <laughs> Don't take it on board now. If you warms, go to something else. <laughs> there you are. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust. Now look at this. Please take this home with you. We should live. You don't begin to live when you're messing about with ungodliness and worldly lust. Now this is what you need to prepare yourself for the Lord's return. What's coming next? I'm not going to try to finish this off. Maybe some other time you'll give me the opportunity to do that. But I'm going to finish off this verse. We should live soberly. Now what is sobriety anyway? Soberly. The alcohol world has stolen that word. The word for soberly here is a right relationship with yourself. Keep yourself right. There's a lot of people would try to keep me right. See? And they would give you a hard time sometimes. But some of the things maybe you say that they mightn't agree with. It doesn't bother me that. You get used to it. You know, if you're not thick of the skin, stay off the pulpit. I can tell you. It's a place where you'll get a lot of criticism. I go to a place to preach, and I maybe I've told you this, there's a wee man goes to the meeting, and he's a wee gern, you know. I don't know if you have any gerns in Saintfield or not. But it wouldn't be so bad if he would gern after the meeting, but he doesn't. He gerns during it. And if you heard something in the meeting that he doesn't agree with, he, he, he up and out about it in the meeting, you see. Well, I met him in Cookstown one day. And I said, uh, well, George, how are you? Oh, he says, brother, the Lord has been good to me. And I thought, why? <laughs> you know, you couldn't have liked him. You reared him. He used to make me rap mad. To live above with saints you love, well, that will all be glory. But to live below with some you know can be quite a different story. And I certainly can. He was one of them. But uh, he says, you know, I'm 94. And the Lord has kept me all these years, and I can't understand it. 
Well, I said, George, I don't find it hard to understand. He says, you don't? I said, no. He said, do you want me to tell you? He said, I says, okay, you go ahead and tell me. He said, he's looking down from heaven, and he sees you, and he hears you. And he says, I'll have that old gearing up here long enough. I'll, I'll let him stay down there as long as ever I can. And he's still there to this day. You know, he didn't take to that too well, I can tell you. But uh, tell me this, brethren and sisters, tonight. Are you living soberly? Are you? You know, self-control. I had a mission one night, and I brought a man along to give his testimony who couldn't see too well. And he was giving his testimony, and I didn't know very much about him. But his wife slipped in at the back of the meeting. And she was listening to him. And oh, he was sort of blowing his trumpet a wee bit, you know. And she jumped up at the meeting and she said, Norman, remember I'm here. She wasn't agreeing with him. She had to live with him. That was a different thing. Very different. I could say a whole lot more about that. Soberly. Keeping yourself under control. Are we any good at it? Don't try to control someone else. It'll never work. Leave the other guy alone. And keep yourself right. Boy, if you can do that, it'll be a lifetime's work. I was thinking today about one of the most godly men the world ever saw, and that was David. And what a mess he made just because he looked at something that he shouldn't have looked at. Because he did, he became an adulterer, he became a liar, he became a thief, and he became a murderer. All because he looked where he shouldn't have. He wasn't exercising self-control. Well, when the Lord comes, your chance to do that's gone. You need to do it now. Then you've got the word righteously. That's a right relationship with my neighbor. Boy, that's a big one. I spent years, and still am spending years, in mission work. I arranged another one today for the early part of the new year, God willing. When you're going around the doors, if a person is really living for God, they may not like it, the people in the area, but they certainly will respect it. No doubt about that. But if a person's professing to be saved and they're not doing what's right and their life is a criticism, boy, the, boy, the man on the door, he gets to hear about it. What about your neighbors? I wonder what they think about you. If I went along tonight and asked them, I'm not going to do it, don't worry about it. I wonder what they'd tell me. I know, I often wonder why it is that people can't bring their neighbors into a gospel mission. Is it because they have no testimony? I don't know the answer to that. But it's worth thinking about. You need a right relationship with your neighbor. Or you're not living righteously at all. And the last thing, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this old enemy. Somebody should take that down and put it in the bin. 
It wouldn't be a bad idea. <laughs> Godly. Now, I thought about this today. If I had been, sometimes I do this whenever I'm looking at some verses in the Bible. I'll ask myself the question, if you had written that, would you have written it the way it was or is? I must admit I wouldn't. I wouldn't have put God in his last. I'd have been inclined to put that first. So why did Paul put it in last? Well, here's the reason. If I haven't a right relationship with myself and my neighbor, how on earth can I claim to be right with God? That's the idea. It's a total contradiction. If I am right with God, then I must be right with my neighbor and myself. But if I'm not right with myself and my neighbor, then I cannot claim to be right with God at all. That's why Paul put that that way. The final thing it says in the verse is, in this present world. Well, it's on its way out. And so are we, one way or the other. You know? And uh, the Lord's coming. Take those three words home with you. Soberly, righteously, godly. Ask the Lord to talk to you about them. Make sure they're yours, lest you be caught up and caught on. Brother, I'll hand it back to you. Thank you. Sorry about the time. Well, not a bit.